scripture reading this evening does come from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The topic for tonight's sermon brings with it many times uh, no small amount of controversy. Uh, I know even uh, some preachers who hesitate even to address the subject at all simply because of the controversy that often surrounds it. And that's unfortunate. I don't believe that's helpful. Uh, And I'll mention a little more about that in just a moment. But the controversy exists probably because of several factors. I would say that um, pride is probably one of them. And I say that for this reason. I would caution you to beware of any individual who claims to have all of the answers about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I have met some people who it seems as if that's their position. That they've got it all figured out. uh, That they have everything in a nice neat little box on the subject of the Holy Spirit. I'd of that person. I would say that sometimes the controversy has uh, come about because of limited information. In other words, not every question about the Holy Spirit that we may come up with has been answered in Scripture. Which is why I say beware of that first guy who says that he has all the answers because I don't believe all the answers are in Scripture. God certainly has revealed everything that He wants us to know about the Spirit. And so that's not any fault of God. I don't want that to be misinterpreted that way. But there are questions that I have, and I suspect there are questions that you have, about the nature and work of God's Spirit that the Bible simply has not given us the answer to. And so because we have somewhat limited information, that has created or at least contributed to sometimes some of the controversy that surrounds the subject of the Spirit. I would say in the next place that some of the controversy exists because of the nature of deity. The nature of the divine. Think about the fact that we are finite creatures. We are not omniscient. We are not all-knowing. We are not omnipresent. We are not omnipotent. There are characteristics that God has that makes Him God that we don't possess. And I don't know that our finite minds can fully and completely grasp the infinite. If I knew everything that there was to know about God and knew everything that God knows, what would I be? Well, I'd be God. And I'm certainly not, neither are you. 
So because of that, because of the fact that when you talk about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about deity. You're talking about the divine. And there is only so much that our finite minds can grasp, that have the ability to grasp about the nature of the divine. Now that would, of course, involve not just the Holy Spirit, but God the Father and God the Son too. There are just simply things about their nature, God's nature, that we don't have the ability to grasp fully and completely. And because of that, it leads again to, to additional unanswered questions. I would say controversy exists about the Spirit in the next place because of the existence of extremes. And that's sad. On the one hand, on one extreme, we might call this the extreme to the left, there are those today who, who go so far as to affirm that the Holy Spirit is still involved in, in uh, granting people miraculous gifts as He did in the first century. And so the miraculous gifts of the Spirit that we read about uh, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12-14, through 14, for example, are still around today, some would claim. Well, I believe that's extreme. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But there's also another extreme that we might say that's on the other end of the spectrum where some evidently seem to believe that the Holy Spirit is today nothing more than a retired author. That He authored the Scriptures and from that point forward has pretty much been without activity. That He, had, he inspired the Scriptures and then completely retired to do nothing more from that time. I don't believe the Bible teaches that either. I believe the truth is between those extremes. But the existence of those extremes have not been helpful in our study and discussion of this vital topic. And then I would add one more. Why do we have controversy about the Holy Spirit? I would add that part of that is due to fear of the subject. That it's a subject that some people are just hesitant to study, hesitant to talk about for a variety of reasons. But that fear of the subject has not been helpful because if we fear the subject and therefore because of that we don't study it and we don't discuss it and we don't try to improve our understanding of what God has revealed about the Spirit, that's not helpful to the church. If God has spoken about His Spirit, and He has, if the Bible addresses the subject, and it does, then there are things that God wants us to know. And for us to decide because of some fear of what we might discover or fear of what someone else may think about us, if for those reasons we refuse to study it and if preachers refuse to preach about it or teach about it, then shame on them. And so, that said, this is a topic that I try to include in my annual sermon plan uh, in some fashion. To have at least one sermon throughout uh, each year that addresses some aspect, some element, some part of the topic of the Holy Spirit. And I know in the past uh, here, I know I have addressed uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit, His nature. And tonight we turn our attention to another aspect of the Spirit's work that the Bible addresses, and that is the indwelling 
of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, on this topic, as is the case with, with other topics at times, unnecessary division has arisen within the body of Christ. And that is unfortunate. It's tragic. Because I don't believe division should exist uh, over this subject. Uh, and we should be able to come to an understanding of the truth, not only on this, but on other subjects as well, and, and, and avoid unnecessary strife. But that hasn't always been the case with this subject. And sometimes, as the old saying goes, more heat has been uh, created than light uh, when this subject has been studied. Well, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to contribute to that. I don't want to contribute to just generating heat. I want to generate light, hopefully, uh, as we study this, uh, this vital subject. So let's talk about the fact of it first, the fact of the indwelling. That the Holy Spirit dwells in the child of God is really beyond dispute. And I, and I don't know anyone in the church who would actively and positively affirm that the Spirit does not dwell in the church. Uh, the controversy comes uh, with another part of that, but let's talk about the fact of the indwelling first. The passages that affirm the indwelling of the Spirit are many. One of them, our text that was read just a little bit ago, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, specifically 19, where Paul wrote, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Now if there was, I don't really know how much plainer the apostle could have stated that than the way he stated it. The Holy Spirit is in you. And He has come to you from God. So 1 Corinthians 6.19 affirms the fact of the indwelling. Another passage that does is Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul writes, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're going to come back to Galatians 4, verse 6 in just a little bit uh, as we uh, address this topic a little more. But at this point, just mark it down in your mind that this is another passage that affirms that the Spirit dwells in the Christian. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. How about Romans chapter 8, verse 11? We'll be studying Romans chapter 8, God willing, next Sunday morning in our adult Bible classes. So we'll address this uh, same topic, at least uh, to some degree, as we look at Romans 8. But verse 11 is one of the passages that specifically, again, affirms that the Spirit dwells in the Christian. Paul says, if then the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and incidentally, when he says if, he's not expressing doubt. that As if to say, I'm not sure if he does or doesn't, but if he does, then this is the case. You can accurately translate that since. Since the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So, that's an affirmation of the indwelling. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus dwells in you. And Paul goes on to say in that chapter, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, specifically 22, where Paul writes, you Christians, you the church, you are being built together 
as a dwelling place of God or for a dwelling place of God in or by the Spirit. Again, the affirmation is, the statement is, that Christians are being built together to be a dwelling place for deity, a dwelling place for God by means of the Spirit. About Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, in Paul's prayer for those Christians, part of that prayer included these words, that He, God, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So Paul affirmed in that passage that the Spirit of God dwells in us. He is the Spirit that is in the inner man. And that we can be strengthened thereby. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22? Where Paul writes that God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right? So God has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a guarantee of future blessing. So how many is that? That's six passages at least that we mentioned that come right out in very plain and clear language and say the Spirit of God dwells in the Christian. The Spirit of God dwells in the church. And like I said before, I don't know anyone in the church who would explicitly deny that and say that the Spirit does not dwell in the church. But I would offer this caution. That we need to be careful that we do not adopt beliefs on the indwelling of the Spirit that imply that the Spirit is not in the church. Now there are some who may not come right out and say that the Spirit doesn't dwell in the church, but by the time they get through explaining what they understand of mean by indwelling, then ultimately that's what you've got. The Spirit's not in the church. And so I'd offer us that caution to be careful in affirming that. So the fact of it is clear. The Spirit dwells in the church. Now, here's where the controversy comes in. Where Bible students have differed is over the question of how the Spirit dwells in the Christian. Okay, and this is where the controversy is. I, I, like I said, I know of no one who would come right out and say, well, the Spirit doesn't dwell in the church. But the controversy is, but how does the Spirit dwell in the church? And essentially, the two options that are before us and the two positions that have been taken historically in churches of Christ anyway, is either that the Holy Spirit Himself, sometimes the words personally or literally are used to describe this, this view, that the Holy Spirit Himself personally dwells within the heart, within the body of the Christian. The other view is that the Holy Spirit does not literally, does not personally dwell in the Christian, but that the Spirit dwells in the Christian representatively in as much as the Spirit's Word is a part of that Christian's heart. To that degree, it could be said that the Spirit dwells in the Christian in a representative fashion. Does that make sense? I, I, I want to present those sides um, accurately. Now, with regard to the representative indwelling view as opposed to the personal indwelling view, those that believe in a representative indwelling 
believe that the indwelling language of Scripture, whenever you come across passages that talk about how the Spirit dwells in you, that language is, according to these uh, brethren, to be understood as a figure of speech. That he doesn't mean that literally. That the writers of the New Testament are using a figure of speech specifically called metonymy. And metonymy is where one thing is stated, but something else is actually intended. And so, what they mean by that is that the indwelling language is a metonymy in this sense. That the writers say that the Spirit dwells, but what they intended to convey was that the Spirit's influence through Scripture is what's in the hearts of men and not the Spirit Himself. Alright? You following? I'm not asking you necessarily if you agree with it. I'm asking if you understand it. Do you follow what is being said? So, the idea is, it's not the Spirit Himself that indwells the Christian. It is the influence of the Spirit by means of the Spirit's Word that indwells the person. And so, as the Spirit influences a person by means of His Word, it is in, in a sense, in that figurative sense, that it could be said that the Spirit dwells, that the Spirit controls that person. The Spirit is influencing that person by means of the Word that that person has embraced and is obeying. Now that's the representative and dwelling view. And there are a lot of brethren uh, that, that I have a lot of respect for, that I have learned a lot from, uh, that I appreciate on many levels, uh, who uh, have adopted that view. However, I personally am among those who believe that the indwelling language of the New Testament is not intended as a figure of speech. That it's not a metonymy. That the Spirit Himself personally lives within the heart of the Christian in conjunction with, I would say, in conjunction with the Word of God. Here's what I mean by that. That as a Christian lives in harmony with the Word, as a Christian walks in the light, that the Spirit personally maintains His presence in that Christian's heart. That's what I believe the Bible to teach on this. And I'll give reasons for that in just a moment. And so, please understand as I explain this further, that the influence of the Word of God and the indwelling of the Spirit of God are certainly connected. You can't divorce those two concepts. You can't divorce those two things. The influence of the Word and the indwelling of the Spirit are connected, but I don't believe they are the same thing. That one is done by means of the other. Now we don't have the time tonight, and maybe in, in future lessons, if there's interest in this, we can explore that further uh, and, and, address, uh, and address more of those uh, types of questions, the, the, uh, the connection between the influence of God's Word and the dwelling of the Spirit and all that. But we only have time to cover just so much tonight. And you may have questions about that or uh, objections that you may want to bring to my attention. Say, well, what about this? Well, maybe we can address some of those in future lessons. And I certainly invite you to, uh, to make those, uh, those comments known to me after our worship is over. But here are two primary reasons why 
I believe that the Spirit Himself personally dwells in the Christian's heart. In the first place, there is no compelling reason to take the indwelling language of Scripture as figurative. There's, there's no compelling necessary reason to take the language that way. Think about this with regard to language. Language has to be understood as literal unless it is absolutely necessary to view it as non-literal. In other words, if we can just assign the label of figurative language to anything that the Scriptures say without having a compelling reason to assign a label of figurative language to it, then people could just open up the Bible and just start saying, well, that's figurative and that's figurative and that's figurative. And and the Bible can end up, in some people's minds, meaning practically anything if you can just, without cause, without reason, just all of a sudden label something figurative. There have to be reasons to do that. Among those reasons are this. In order for us to take language to be figurative as opposed to literal, it would have to do one of the following. The language would have to demand that a literal interpretation uh, involve affirming an absurdity. If you take language literally, and by a literal understanding of language, you end up affirming something that's absolutely absurd, then you know that the language must be figurative instead of literal. Example. Psalm 18 verse 2 refers to God as a rock. God is, the psalmist said, God is my rock. Well, is that literal language or figurative language? If we take it literally, then we're going to be left espousing the fact that God is some kind of a stone, some kind of literal stone that you could pick up off the ground. Well, that's an absurdity. We know that's not the case. So so the language then has to be figurative. God is a rock in a figurative sense. He's not a literal stone. So if language taken literally involves you affirming something like that, that's an absurdity, then you know the language has to be understood as figurative. What about an impossibility? If literal language involves affirming an impossibility, then you know the language has to be figurative. Example, Joshua chapter 2 verse 11, where Rahab says, when, the, that when our people heard about everything that God was doing for you Israelites, our hearts melted within us. Joshua 2 11. Our hearts melted within us? Literally? Well, no, it's not literal. Why? Because to to take that language as literal would involve affirming something that was impossible. Another absurdity, an impossibility. Their hearts didn't literally melt within their bodies. She was using figurative language. Okay, But the reason why we know it's figurative is because the nature of language demands that it be taken that way. It has to be figurative. Because to affirm it to be literal would involve an absurd impossibility. What about a contradiction? If you take language to be literal and, it, and by doing so you involve yourself in contradiction to other clear passages, then you know you've got to take that language to be figurative in some sense. Or if you come across a passage and the writer of the passage says this is figurative language, well, then obviously you know the language is figurative. 
Paul refers in Galatians chapter 4 to an allegory. And he says, this is an allegory. It's a form of figurative language. And so he clues you into that. Well, you know then that it's figurative. Revelation 1, these things were written in signs, signified to you. Well, you know then that you're dealing with figurative language because the writer comes right out and tells you. So when you open up the Bible and you begin reading, and not just the Bible, but any, any verbal expression, language by its nature must be taken literally unless there is a compelling reason why you have to take it figuratively. So when you come to the language of Scripture with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is there a compelling reason that makes it necessary, absolutely necessary, that the language be understood figuratively instead of literally? To affirm a literal indwelling of the Spirit, does it involve an absurdity? No. Does it involve an impossibility? No. Not unless you're willing to affirm and be able to prove that... um, that the nature of deity is such that it cannot live within uh, a physical body. But I know of nothing in the Scriptures that would indicate that that's an impossibility. Does it involve a contradiction to other passages? No, not that I've been able to see. Is the language of the indwelling anywhere stated in Scripture? Hey, this is figurative language? No. So, there's no compelling reason to take the language as figurative. And if there's not, then it has to be understood as literal. The Spirit is in you. So that's reason number one why I take the position that I take, is that there's no reason not to take it that way. Now, there are some who say, well, yes, I have some reasons. (laughs) And you may be among those, and that's fine. If you want to bring some of those to me uh, later, then I'd be happy to... um, Uh, to perhaps address them as best I can, but I have not yet heard of any reason why that language should be, must be, has to be taken figuratively. Now, the second reason why I take the view that I take. Because I believe strongly that the representative indwelling view leads a person to a position that really cannot be biblically defended. And here's what I mean by that. Let's look at some of the passages I mentioned earlier. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians 4, verse 6. Paul writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Now I want you to underscore in your mind as we think through this, That phrase, because you are sons. So the Holy Spirit is not sent into an individual's heart in order to make them sons, in order to make them a part of God's family. The Spirit in the heart of an individual is a blessing that comes because that individual has become a son of God. When a person obeys the gospel and they become one of God's children, the Spirit is sent into their hearts because they have become a child of God. Alright? So notice the sequence. You become a child of God, the Spirit is then sent into your heart. Add to that the statement of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 17. John 14, 17. As Jesus 
was speaking about the Holy Spirit. And calls Him the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17. And He says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Underscore that in your mind. John 14, 17. Regarding the Spirit, Jesus said, whom, the Spirit, the world cannot receive. Alright. So the world can't receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to those who have become children of God. So the world, the non-Christian, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. But, this question, can someone who is in the world be influenced by the Word of God? Well, sure. Not only can somebody who's in the world be influenced by the Word of God, they must be influenced by the Word of God in order to become a Christian. That's Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. On the day of Pentecost, after Peter had preached, Luke records in Acts 2.41 these words. So they who gladly received His Word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Notice the sequence. They preached. They received the Word. And those that had received the Word were then baptized and added to the body. So you have people who at the time were in the world, they were not Christians, but they received the Word and were being influenced by the Word to become Christians. Now, here's the question. If the indwelling language of the Scriptures is intended to convey the idea of influence of the Spirit through His Word, you have in Acts 2.41 individuals who were being influenced by the Word and had received the Word. Well, if the indwelling of the Spirit is the same thing as the indwelling influence of the Word of God, then you've got people in Acts 2.41 who are indwelled by the Spirit before they were baptized. You see that? They received the Word and were influenced by the Word, which led them to their obedience to the Gospel. But Jesus said the world can't receive the Spirit. John 14, 17. So the world can't receive the Spirit, but the world can receive the influence of the Word. Acts 2, 41. So therefore, the indwelling of the Spirit and the influence of the Word can't be the same thing. Or else you've got people who are not Christians being indwelled by the Spirit, and Paul said that's not possible. It's because you are sons that you're indwelled by the Spirit. Not in order to make you sons. So, it's my belief that the representative indwelling view involves a person in that contradiction. That you either have people who are still in the world, indwelled by the Spirit, or those who have not yet been baptized are already Christians because the Spirit's indwelling them beforehand. If the Spirit, if the indwelling of the Spirit is the same thing as the influence of the Word. So for those reasons, 
That's why I've adopted the view that I have on the indwelling of the Spirit. The more I study the subject of the Spirit of God, the more I realize the difficulty in fully and completely understanding the nature and activity of the Godhead. Now that doesn't mean that just because we don't know everything about the Spirit and can't explain everything about the Spirit, that doesn't mean that we can't know anything and that we can't explain anything. I believe there are things that we can know that God wants us to know. And we need to be able to uh, handle the revelation of uh, these matters in Scripture uh, in ways that, that bring harmony to all of the passages and that don't involve us in some kind of, uh, of contradiction. But I do pray as we study these things that God would grant the church a spirit of wisdom, uh, patience, calmness, uh, and peace as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1 verse 27. Well, I hope the lesson has been helpful. Perhaps it is going to spur you on to additional study. Uh, it certainly uh, is a topic that I need to study more, and maybe we can do that together in some, uh, in some capacity. It's a fascinating study to study uh, deity and to study specifically God's Spirit and... Um, his indwelling and activity in the lives of His people. Truth has nothing to fear. And so as we study the truth of God's Word, let's study and reach conclusions that are warranted by the evidence, and only conclusions that are warranted by the evidence. No need for speculation. No need for fanciful ideas that don't come right out of the text. Let's allow the Bible to uh, form our opinions and guide our lives and guide uh, our actions in everything. And hopefully this will help us uh, in our ongoing study of this subject and others as well. Well, one of the things that is uh, that we mentioned in passing, uh, but that I want to end with, is the, uh, the blessing that is uh, the indwelling of God's Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. If you are not a child of God, then you don't have that blessing. Uh, it's a blessing to those who obey the gospel. I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit, for example, in Acts 2.38, is the Holy Spirit Himself, given as a gift to those who are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And the Holy Spirit serves as our seal and our guarantee of future blessing when this life is over. Ephesians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. If that's a blessing that you would like to have, uh, it's not miraculous. It doesn't give you miraculous gifts or anything like that, but it is a blessing nonetheless through which God uh, blesses our lives and strengthens us, Ephesians 3.16. You can have that blessing if you're obedient to the gospel to have your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. If you're ready to make that commitment and that step tonight, then let us help you complete your obedience to the gospel. Christian, have you not been living like you should? perhaps without a proper respect for the Spirit of God who lives within you. Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians 6 that the fact of the indwelling of God's Spirit is, is, should be great motivation for us to live lives of holiness and to flee fornication and other sins because 
Your body is the temple of the Spirit. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. If we recognize and truly appreciate the fact that deity lives within us, that'll affect the, the decisions we make. That'll affect the choices we make. And we'll make choices that will glorify God in our body and in our spirits, which belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. If you've not been living like that, change that tonight. And if you need to repent of some sin and seek God's forgiveness or request the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ, do that tonight as we stand together and sing.